It's Wednesday, July 14th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Checking in on the restaurant and hospitality industry, things have not gotten much better yet. Businesses are still struggling to attract employees, who in some cases have moved on to other sectors. Pandemic layoffs pushed many hospitality employees to seek jobs with better pay, more perks, and different career opportunities. And some aren't going back to their old jobs. Heather Haddon, restaurants reporter at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for more. Next, in November of 2019, a woman with a sore throat gave an Italian hospital a skin sample that would later test positive for COVID-19. This would make her one of the world's first suspected cases. But there's a problem for researchers looking into the origins and trying to establish a timeline. All her details have been lost and no one knows where she is. Drew Henshaw, senior reporter at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for this mysterious case in Italy. Finally, why does everything feel more expensive right now? The short answer is because it is. We are paying more for everything from used cars to groceries to lumber and chicken weight. Inflation is up, but economists think this is a temporary situation as post-pandemic production bottlenecks and imbalances continue to work themselves out. Emily Stewart, senior reporter at Vox, joins us for why everything is costing more. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. And a lot of other industries just did not shut down. You know, manufacturing, banking, insurance, services, even, you know, grocery services. Uh, I talked to one worker who moved over into that. And so now they've sort of settled into these jobs and they're not just leaping back at the chance to return to the restaurant job. Joining us now is Heather Haddon, restaurants reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Heather. Thanks so much. Wanted to check in on the restaurant industry. You know, there's customers are back at the restaurants and bars, but a lot of the workers have moved on from their old jobs. We all know that the closures during the pandemic really affected the service industry a lot. You know, restaurants, hotels, bars, everything. And a lot of workers ended up getting furloughed, fired, however it went. And they, a lot of them moved on to different industries. They moved on into things that were available and open to them. In a lot of cases, they got higher wages, better perks, paid time off, all this stuff that really helped with their personal lives. And a lot of them aren't going back to the service industry. So this is causing a, a labor shortage in that area that we've been hearing about for some time now. So, Heather, what are we looking at with this? Yeah, like you said, um, certainly some folks did take unemployment, whether they had to care for loved ones at home or you know just didn't want to work in a public facing space, but others moved on. So maybe they'd been a, a server for a long time or uh, working in kitchens, you know, kind of grew up in the industry. And when they were laid off, it gave them a chance to really just say, what should I be doing here and what kind of jobs are available? And a lot of other industries just did not shut down, you know, manufacturing, banking, insurance, services, even, you know, grocery services. Uh, I talked to one worker who moved over into that And so now they've sort of settled into these jobs and they're not just leaping back at the chance to return to the restaurant jobs now that they've resumed. And we've also been talking a lot about how these restaurants and other businesses have been trying everything really to get workers back with raising wages, offering signing perks, things like that, even rethinking the whole scheduling stuff so that it would be a little easier for the workers' personal lives. Yeah, no, the businesses really have had to respond. So, yeah, we just had a story about McDonald's owners are looking at offering childcare to workers, um, more paid time off, more money, uh, more flexibility, because even 
big companies like that are having trouble getting their workers back and they have the wherewithal to try to do some of these things, add these perks to try to get people back and to keep them. You know, the restaurant industry has always had high turnover. This has not just been an issue now, but the pandemic has certainly made it worse. So they're really having to add some of these perks now. Yeah, you know, and the demand for the regular consumer is really high to get back out to these things that they enjoyed doing beforehand, obviously. Uh, And so what we're seeing, too, in a lot of places is longer waits, complaints online when these businesses are operating with less experienced staff and everything. What are we seeing there? Yeah, no, people want to go back out, but they want nice service. And not all of them are getting that or they perceive that they're not getting it and are complaining about it, whether it's just being slow or, you know, some people don't like to just scan their menu on a QR code. They want a physical menu or they just don't feel attended to and they're complaining about it. So they're yeah going online. And I think that's, you know, hard for these restaurant businesses as they're trying to get back up to speed that they're having to deal with this service issue as well and some perceptions about service. So what are we seeing in some of the data with some of the numbers that we're seeing there's a lot of other jobs in, in, in other sectors that have seen a lot of gains with employees. People are pivoting away from a lot of this service stuff. And you mentioned in the article that the share of restaurant and hotel workers that were leaving their jobs hit a two-decade high back in May. Yeah, the quit rate is way up. So these workers, you know, are taking their feet elsewhere when they can, you know, whether, again, it's unemployment or other jobs or just taking a pause. A lot of these folks have been leaving and that's going to take time for the industry to reverse, whether through investment or, you know, just the labor market normalizing to some degree, hopefully later this year. I mean, that takes time to snap back. And yes, so the jobs are still still down quite a bit from pre-pandemic levels. You know, you mentioned how everything kind of has to even out on its own, basically, but have experts kind of given this any timeline? I mean, this is going to, obviously, we're mid-summer right now, so this is going to at least extend into the fall and winter, I'm assuming. Yeah, I mean, a lot of analysts are looking to the fall when the federal benefits completely roll off, but I think it's it's more, it's bigger than that. It is going to take time for this restaurant industry to rebuild, you know, and a lot of places did close during the pandemic, but new restaurants are opening, so there's worker needs even despite some of the closures. And uh, there's been a number of surveys and all that, uh, you know, talking about how do we get them back, right? How do we get these workers back and and all? There's been some surveys. A lot of them want a better work-life balance. Obviously, higher wages is another thing. But what are we seeing in those surveys? Yeah, it's not just pay. It is flexibility. It's, you know, it's better benefits. It's things that aren't just as easy to fix as just boosting wages, though that's not easy in itself. It's just changing the nature of some of these jobs, making giving more flexibility, allowing maybe more like shift sharing or just scheduling changes. And that that takes time to implement. Well, we'll see how all of this continues to go. You know, I I just I I like paying attention to the restaurant industry. It's one of those things that I love to do and go out and and you see those changes. We've seen them over the pandemic play out in real time. And and now we are in this worker shortage. So it's something, uh, you know, people do need jobs, but they don't want these anymore. At the same time, we want those services. We want to go back to those restaurants and bars. So we'll keep monitoring all of that. Heather Haddon, restaurants reporter at the Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much.
this is all very interesting. It's the kind of clue that the World Health Organization would like to look into. The problem is the doctor who did all this research has died. And with him went the contact details for this now 27-year-old woman. Nobody knows who she is, where she's living, how to reach her. Joining us now is Drew Henshaw, senior reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Drew. Thanks for having me. Investigators are still looking into the origins of COVID-19. There's clues all around. You're on this beat right now, which is so interesting to keep following. And there's just tiny clues all over the place. And it's just hard to really put them all together. And one of the latest ones is this 25-year-old woman from Milan in Italy, who in November of 2019, she went into a hospital. She had a sore throat. The hospital took a skin sample Later on, that tested positive for COVID-19. So this could have been one of the first cases of COVID-19. And uh, obviously outside of China, too. It's uh, swirling around in Italy now at this time. But there's a big problem with all of this is that everybody lost her details. There's no details that the hospital has, other investigators. Nobody knows how to contact her. So this big clue is there, and we don't know what to do with it. So, Drew, help us walk through some of this. Right, that's right. There was a 25-year-old woman who in November 2019, a month before COVID-19 had appeared in, in, at the market in Wuhan. She stops in an Italian hospital. She's got a sore throat and skin lesions, and skin lesions are a symptom of COVID-19. The doctor says, well, I don't know what this is. He takes a skin sample. Everyone forgets about it. Later, when Italy was under lockdown, they say, hey, let's go back and test that skin sample. And sure enough, they find the spike protein, you know, which is the part of the, the virus that attaches to our cells, and they find the, the protein shell that cover that's kind of the round ball. And they're like, that's really interesting. And they give the woman, the woman takes a test. She has antibodies against COVID, against the virus. She herself has the disease. It's a question of when. This is all very interesting. It's the kind of clue that the World Health Organization would like to look into. The problem is the doctor who did all this research has died. And with him went the contact details for this now 27-year-old woman. Nobody knows who she is, where she's living, how to reach her. It's uh, another kind of lost trail, cold trail in this hunt. Yeah, I mean, that's totally unfortunate because the thing is, is that she might not be patient zero, but what investigators are trying to do is they're looking for a timeline. You know, if they can find that earliest point of contact in Italy, they may be able to trace it to something to China. You know, that that's what they're looking for is that timeline. Exactly. Nobody thinks this pandemic began in Italy. The question is, when did this pandemic begin? There are a lot of studies that look at the virus's rate of mutation and kind of guess, well, October. November, as early as September, probably around October. Well, November 10th, that would make a lot of sense. That would be interesting. And one of the things that's the implications here is, well, this market, we all assume this began the market at first. There's lots of reasons to doubt the market. And if a woman in northern Italy had this virus on November 10th, a full month before the first known cases at the market in Wuhan, the seafood market, then it's like one more reason to doubt that this really began at a market. That market, and we've talked about it before, was most likely just the first big super spreader event of the virus, not necessarily exactly where it might have originated, but that's why exactly. th- that's why they keep looking into this. So what have Italian officials done in, in far, as far as this? Or the WHO is at least calling for Italy to continue testing samples from around that time. The WHO says you can't ignore this. You know, there's something here. You've got to look into it. Unfortunately, nobody knows how to reach this woman. So it's an example of the kind of, dead ends that the WHO is left here with. You know, China has said, we're done. We're not doing any more investigation. Our part is complete. Go look at somewhere else. China wants, you know, the the government there 
wants the world to believe that this might have begun in another country. So China's not conducting any more research, it doesn't seem like at the moment. And that means that the, you know, the people investigating this are left looking elsewhere. Then, you know, maybe we could look at Italy to find some of these early cases that might tell us about what was happening in China. Maybe we could look, you know, at bats in Southeast Asia that might tell us a little bit. Unfortunately, the real, you know, the, the, the game here is to do tests of people's antibodies in places like in China, in southern China. Maybe this began in southern China, not Wuhan. But if we can't conduct that, if that research can't be conducted, then you're left looking at people like this um, Italian woman. You've been following the WHO and, and kind of the research into looking into the origins of all of this. Any other big clues or other types of dead ends, things like similar to this that might that stand out that have cropped up recently? Yeah, what is striking to me is the amount of evidence that ordinary people or, you know, even scientists, but, you know, on the outside of the WHO system have been able to find online on their own. You know, we had a scientist who found genetic sequences of some of the earliest cases that had been uploaded to a U.S. government archive and deleted. He found them. They were just sitting on the Google Cloud, archived to the Google Cloud. We've had all kinds of people who've been able to dig up vital clues, just sitting at home behind a laptop, people who, you know, have a, a bit of specialty in this and but are, are working on their own, you know, um, they're, they're on their own. That is really one of the striking things here. Another example is a group of researchers who found a list of the animals that were sold at markets in November 2019 in Wuhan. Those people aren't working with for the WHO. They aren't working with the WHO. They weren't through the Chinese government. They were just doing it on their own. There, there's a lot of scientific research that's being done kind of off the grid. And for the moment, it's been more successful than, you know, this kind of diplomatic effort that the WHO, or for that matter, the U.S. efforts, as far as we know about them, have been. Drew Henshaw, senior reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, too. If you look behind the headline numbers, you'll see that the incoming data are, are consistent with the view that prices, the prices that are driving that higher inflation are from categories that are being directly affected by the recovery from the pandemic and the reopening of the economy. Joining us now is Emily Stewart, senior reporter at Vox. Thanks for joining us, Emily. Thanks for having me. I wanted to talk about why everything feels more expensive right now. And the short answer is, it, is because it is. We're going through this transitory period right now with prices, you know, trying to get back to normal after the pandemic. We saw a lot of supply chain issues and the economy might be running a little hot right now is what economists are thinking. They're hoping it's going to start evening out. But pretty much everything, uh, flights, lumber, we've done stories about chicken wings being more expensive, uh, just regular pantry items, things that you buy at the grocery store. So, Emily, tell us a little bit more about what we're seeing here. Yeah, so as we said, you know, the economy is running a little bit. The consumer price index that the Bureau of Labor Statistics puts out, the prices were about 5% higher over the past year of, you know, a general basket of goods, of a variety of things. So things are more expensive. I think it's important to note things were less expensive last year. You know, the reason that it looks like flight prices have gone up so much is that they have, but also you were not flying in May and June of last year, probably, or at least a lot fewer people were flying. So prices were down. We're kind of starting from a little bit lower. But, you know, as you said, the economy has a lot of different bottlenecks and kinks to kind of work out. We shut down vast loss of the economy last year, and it's going to take a minute for things to catch up. And just, you know, people kind of reacted differently. I think one 
good example to look at is maybe lumber, right? Where the lumber industry has been struggling for a long time. And last year when the pandemic hit, it would what a lot of people assumed that the economy is going to be very bad. And so they ramped down production even more. But he sat at home, decided they hated their houses and wanted to build a new home or renovate their homes. And there was this huge demand for lumber. And so that for a while created a squeeze. It looks like right now it's starting to settle down as lumber prices settle back down a little bit from where they were earlier this year. But those are sorts of imbalances that right now we're kind of seeing worked out across the economy. The lumber thing was was kind of huge where a lot of people were reacting to it. Uh, You mentioned the article, you know, in the summer of 2019, a thousand board feet of lumber was somewhere in the range of three hundred dollars. And when it hit the the highest peak, that was coming in at $1,500. So, I mean, that's a, a huge jump, and that's kind of cause for concern. Another thing that has kind of jumped up a lot, too, that we've talked about on the podcast previously before as well is used cars. Uh, used cars have jumped up tremendously. I think they're up about 30% in some places. That's another cause for concern right there. Right. And I do think, though, that the lumber and used cars shortage, at least right now, kind of tell different stories in that we're not quite sure where inflation will go. So right now with lumber prices are going back down, you know, it topped around like 1500. I think I checked today it was like 700, $800 for a thousand board feet. So that's starting to read, it kind of balance itself out. And on the used car front, you know, we're not there yet. There's a semiconductor shortage that is affecting new cars. A lot of people just in the past year, you know, didn't want to fly, didn't want to take public transportation. So they bought a used car and those prices we don't, coming down yet i think the question is when will they like do i think that the, the price of used cars is going to be up seven percent month after month for the rest of our lives absolutely not so what we don't know is when these things will sort of settle back so uh, as you mentioned you kind of were alluding to it already the big question is how long all of this will last i mean there's big fears that some economists have that you know, we'll get into this sustained period of high inflation, hyperinflation, all these things could happen. That's the big worry. Yeah. I mean, what you hear people talk about a lot, at least in the United States context, is the 1970s when the U.S. did see quite high inflation for a sustained period of time. There was so much growth. There was a lot of unemployment. And basically, the way the country got out of that was that the Fed chair pushed the country into a recession. I think the question right now is like you said, how long this lasts and what the Biden administration has said, what the Fed chair, Jay Powell, has said is that they think this is transitory, meaning they think this is short-lived, right? That once all of these kind of bumps and kinks in the economy work themselves out and we get more of a balance on the supply-demand side, that inflation will come back down. I think that being said, the Fed is not doesn't have its eyes closed. It's not that the Fed is not looking what's going on at the economy. The Fed's not ignoring what's happening with inflation. And so, you know, I think it's obviously when you go to the store, it is a little bit scary that things do feel a little bit more expensive. I live in New York. I notice it here when I go out and say, wait, does stuff need to cost this much? Right. Um, we are a little bit in wait and see mode, but it's hard to argue. I think that it's time to panic just yet um, because Everything about the past year has been really weird in the economy, and we don't know coming next. But the Fed and policymakers are paying attention to what's happening. Emily Stewart, senior reporter at Vox, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment 
give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Diver is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.